This is week four advanced listening for TWT's Know Your Enemy course. In this session, Gargi Bhattacharya and Richard Seymour discuss in what way are the Tories trying to recompose the state? Is the party a unified actor? Does the ruling class really rule? And if so, how do they do it? Does nationalism serve to build an alliance of the different parts of the right in Britain? And why is it that so many ostensibly working class voters in Britain still vote for the right? To find out more about the course and how you might be a participant in any future iterations of it, you can join our mailing list at theworldtransform.org. Hello and thanks for coming to the fourth session in Know Your Enemy. Um, And today we're again very lucky to have Richard Seymour with us to give us some insights into the questions that have been running through the course. Hi, thanks for your time. I'm going to jump straight in with the big question, which has really been running through the whole programme, about does the ruling class really rule? And if so, how do they do it? That's a really good question because uh, um, it it depends on what you mean. Uh, I think um, it's a question about political power and state power. Um, The ruling class... um, from a certain point of view, there's an argument that could be had, like figures like Fred Block would argue, that the so-called ruling class, capitalist class, only has a really homeostatic relationship with the state. In other words, the state needs their tax revenues, the state needs business to work well, so the state uh, sort of works autonomously, but generally gravitates toward a capitalist interest. So that's not the same thing as the ruling class ruling. Personally, I'm, I'm inclined to think that the ruling class does rule. Um, not just because of the evidence of, you know, the state being colonized by ruling class figures and so on, which wouldn't necessarily tell us anything. Um, I'm inclined to Palancian sort of state theory, and Palancian's had the idea that essentially the state is a form, de- uh, what was the, the formulation? It's a form-determined condensation of the balance of class forces, and one could expand that formulation. And that's a quite opaque um, and condensed formulation, but I guess what it means uh, is that um, over time, the um, the struggle between various social forces, social and political forces, not just class, um, makes its um, effect, it registers uh, its impact on the material institutions and apparatuses of the state, the way the state is organized, its ruling ideologies, um, and so on. And uh, it's not just a question of the state at any moment being a screenshot of the balance of forces in the country, but it's cumulative. Um, So, you know, I mean, uh, one of the uh, sort of best examples might actually be what happened to the English state after the Civil War. Uh, wherein uh, a state uh, that had largely been dominated by um, an aristocratic and feudal ruling class uh, came to be dominated by an uh, incipient agrarian capitalist class, merchants and so on. And uh, Robin Blackburn describes this uh, process, I think, in the making of New World Slavery, how essentially it began with them uh, dominating in a direct way, dominating the apparatuses, um, and reforming them to the uh, advantage and benefit of this emerging form of capitalism um, and reshaping it. And then, you know, you just think about it over the centuries, the various struggles that have taken place, um, you know, the uh, sort of incipient working class and anti-slavery uprisings in the uh, late 18th century, 
the uh, struggle uh, of the uh, working class to get the vote, struggles, uh, incipient uh, suffragism, um, uh, the struggles against colonialism and the impact that that had on uh, the English and then the British state. Um, uh, and uh, the, in, in all sorts of ways, uh, and of course, social democracy in the 20th century, in all sorts of ways, the British state was fundamentally reformed um, uh, without ceasing to be uh, a capitalist state, without ceasing to be a state dominated um, and selective in favor of um, uh, capitalist interests. I think that's probably somewhat how it works. Um, and um, that tends to mean that um, maybe we should stop talking about the state. You know that um, uh, in, in in that definite article can be quite misleading because it can lead us to think of the state as an object or as an historical personality, whereas really we're talking about a field of um, of struggle, of cont contestation, uh, a field that's dominated by the enemy. I would like to say it's enemy territory. So if you enter it, which you can you are not going to be able to dominate it, but you can form opposition, you can form pockets of resistance. Um, and I think that um, uh, the complicating thing for us becomes when the state, uh, when the ruling class rules, um, uh, as it tends to do in capitalist democracies through uh, techniques that are, um, in the Stuart Hall sense, hegemonic. In other words, they don't necessarily always achieve hegemony, but they're designed to uh, hegemonize sectors of mass opinion, public opinion. Um, and so they offer things uh, through the state that are, you know, materially in the interests of um, working class people, of women, uh, of migrants and so on. But in the totality of what the state is, it remains an enemy. Um, so we can become complicit in our own domination um, by the things that we demand, and yet we cannot not have a strategy with regard to the state. No, that's so interesting. And some of what you're saying echoes an earlier conversation we had in this series with Tom Mills about, as you say, not seeing the state as this kind of unified object that we're always banging our head against. But we were actually thinking of the state almost as an archipelago. I can hardly say that word. Like, not only a field of struggle, but a series of fields of struggle that may have yeah. kind of tensions between the different arenas and as you say may instantiate different kinds of claims that our side is making not always in unison across the different arenas that's so interesting what you're how you're describing that kind of sedimented power of the state and how, what happens over time but in an earlier conversation that was really fed into this program that I think you had with a member of TWT I think you suggested that the current leadership of the Tory party want to recompose the state and reorder the dominant fractions within the state apparatus. And part of that conversation in its reporting to me was a recognition that even the Tory party is not a unified actor and they're not the only kind of class interest in relation to the state. So I wondered if you could say something about what you meant about the Tory party's difficult project of recomposing the state and what kind of things have to be mediated within the Tory party and also what they seek to achieve by that. Good. Uh, so the, I mean, I think it's it's worth thinking about what is the purpose of a Conservative Party. Um, you know, uh, it historically would have been the party of um, the landed aristocracy before becoming the party supposedly, you know, of the Brewers, the Brewers Party, um, and then becoming 
in the 20th century, um, predominantly an anti-socialist party, which uh, linked sections of big business, uh, which are not intrinsically conservative in that sense, not not reactionary anyway, with um, you know the mass uh, of the sort of middle class, um, or at least a section of the middle class, and uh, the skilled workforce, um, those parts of them who vote conservative. Um, and so it's always been uh, a sort of a site for the circulation of power and the circulation of ideas and strategies and contest. Um, and uh, obviously there is class conflict built into the Conservative Party. Um, now, the way it's hierarchically organized sort of uh, means that it will never entirely be taken over, I think, by uh, the working class conservatives, um, even though they have more of a voice now than they've had for some time. Um, but uh, there is nonetheless uh, a need for the Conservative Party to propose um, a synthetic um, uh, project that can accommodate these very diverse class interests uh, that it embodies in its apparatuses and its institutions and so on. Um, so uh, that's part of what's happening. The Conservative Party has experienced an uprising I don't think it primarily, by the way, um, within the Conservative Party, it's an uprising of the working class uh, sort of constituency. Um, by and large, uh, this seems to be, uh, at its core, the sort of the kinds of people who vote UKIP, or at least uh, vote UKIP in its, uh, in, uh, in its infancy, the um, southeastern, uh, basically downwardly mobile middle class, I would say, um, who, ha and, and quite a lot of them, I, I was looking into some of the, the, the voting patterns, people who voted UKIP and the Brexit party, um, and, um, and then back the Conservatives in 2019. And the interesting thing about them is that they are quite often um, large business owners, but not um, multinationals. You know, they're, I guess in the UK uh, context, you would say these are medium-sized business owners. They're very localized in terms of their frame of reference. They don't get much benefit from the expanded pools of uh, relatively uh, low-cost labor across the European Union. Um, they don't benefit from the rationalization of production across the European Union, and therefore they had a conflict with the EU over all these sorts of regulations. And culturally, they were much more drawn towards the kind of paranoia and conspiracism, according to which the EU is uh, the EUSSR, the euro is a ruble, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so that's, um, I think... That has meant that the Conservative Party, if it wants to continue to dominate the British state in the way that it has, has done in the past, has to come up with uh, something akin to what, over time, the Thatcher project became. I don't think the Thatcher project was born as a coherent project, but uh, I think that uh, Stuart Hall was quite uh, prescient in saying that there was something... Uh, both of um, the kind of authoritarianism that Palantzis spoke of and a kind of populism, an insurgent uh, aspect to it, which would uh, reorganize the state apparatuses, reorganize the civil service, reorganize the BBC. Um, and um, that's essentially what they did. They dislodged the old elites. And I think that uh, those around Dominic Cummings um, and Boris Johnson and so on have... Uh, a similar idea or had a similar idea with regard to shaking up the civil service. Um, but there was no coherence around what that should actually mean. There was an element of Singapore on the Thames. Let's have uh, radical free markets, uh, Britain being a 
a global trader, all the rest of it, um, probably in some way mediated ways linked to the colonial imaginary, um, in other ways linked to the sort of imagination of a post-war Britannia. Um, but then there was also, you know, uh, the, the idea of um, uh, an expanded statism. And that was interesting also about the Brexit party, by the way, um, uh, when it, it was basically, you know, the Brexit party wasn't a party, it was a digital operation of the Tory right, I think, uh, uh, to some extent, combined with the suburban en rogé. Mm. Um, and uh, their economic project was a combination of really aggressive free market thinking plus statist um, uh, sort of uh, infusions of capital, support for manufacturing and so on. Uh, they had a fellow from the Chambers of Commerce stand up and talk about the necessity of supporting the British steel industry and taking advantage of the post-Brexit, um, uh, you know, chance to um, engage in state aid, for example. So a very contradictory project. And I, I think that um, that at the moment, the Conservatives don't really have a coherent project. And I think that if it were to revert to someone like Sunak, um, it would probably lean slightly more on the sort of Cameron Osborne end, even though, you know, they're still talking about spending more money. So it's, um, I think it's, it's, it's a contradictory project, um, not the less dangerous for us, um, given the way in which they have assimilated some of the left's demands and articulated them in a, a right-wing format. No, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't going to ask this question, but it's so interesting to me when you were speaking about the idea of a, a kind of downwardly mobile, formerly comfortable middle class as being part of the new articulation of the centre of the Tory party, which I think fits so many things that are happening in this country about the kind of the loss of prestige, the, the loss of living standards, the, the precaritization of the mid middle class, um, the squeeze of being finally, finally no longer an imperial power and what that does for, as you say, the small and medium business sector. And um, so I kind of wonder if, I mean, I hope this will feed into the next question. But, um, and you've said, look, they need a shared project. And actually, the, the session before you, when I spoke to Sita Balani, we were speaking about perhaps we're no longer in the stage of that kind of hegemonic project where you have one coherent narrative or, or you seek hearts and minds. Maybe there are ways of destabilizing and neglecting and hurting people that keep people pacified through a different kind of model of pacification, which again feels so much like, you know, the zeitgeist of Britain right now. Yeah. But um, I was interested in what you're saying about the ways in which perhaps still that old friend of the nationalist call might still reinsert itself as a version of what an alliance can always be built around on the right and the soft right and the hard right and i wondered if you still thought that was what was coming forward yeah um it it seems i mean it, it's it's um it's a strange situation because um i think as benjamin bratton was saying the other day most of our major problems are planetary you know and we obviously need a planetary response but we live in a situation where the um the reflex um, that that produces is towards um, 
a more exclusionary form of nationalism. And to link it back to the whole question of downward mobility, I know that there's some research on this and, you know, I mean, uh, there's probably um, much more work to be done, but research suggesting broadly, um, and I can, I think this is true across a lot of countries, Brazil, the United States, the UK, um, the downwardly mobile sectors of the population are much more susceptible to what's called resentful nationalism, you know. Um, and you can see how this works. Um, if you look at um, uh, the people who turned out for the um, capital riot, uh, the majority of participants were people who had been, until about 2008, pretty well off. Um, they'd been upwardly mobile, if anything. These were not, um, you know, the, 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 the typical... Uh, far-right profile uh, in the previous era who would have been an older, unemployed uh, white male. These were people who had been doing well and then they had suffered, um, uh, you know, um, financial losses and so on. So um, uh, how does that work in a sort of neoliberal context, uh, which we inherit, where essentially to lose, to lose ground is to lose something ontologically. Uh, it's, to, it's to be a, a loser. It's to be the, the scum of the earth. Um, it's um, it's a real personal deficit. Um, and you think, you know, for years, I've been told that I'm something, I'm something important, I matter. Um, and maybe that was linked to imperial status, you mentioned, you know, the downfall of British imperialism, but also, let's not forget, America is going undergoing a decentering process, if you like. Um, and um, you know, whiteness is uh, diminishing in currency, though still remains salient as a political project. Um, all these sorts of things, I think uh, it's uh, it's it's more than just material interests, in other words, or at least more than a narrow version of material interests. It's something about being, something mm -hmm. about, you know, the, the status and uh, the mm -hmm. kind of recognition that we have. So um, I, I think that um, nationalism is an interesting thing because it it has a, a it appears to be in, inclusionary on one side of it uh in that um to take the extreme uh form of uh nationalist uh sort of mobilization uh which would be the pogrom um such as we've seen in india recently um well, there's uh, so something which is, it's obviously not inclusionary, even within the framework of the nation. It splits it right down the middle. Um, uh, indeed, it, all the aggression is directed internally. It's not an imperialist venture in that sense, um, although it uh, obviously has that aspect in Kashmir. But there's, um, uh, there, there's the idea that uh, basically, no matter what your background, no matter what your class, you're included in something um, which is to do with um, exhilaration, which is to do with um, the excitement of mobilization, the excitement of attacking an enemy or destroying a neighbor. Um, and that's that was one of the things that struck me about Modi um, and his votes uh, came from right across social classes. Um, and it didn't seem to be as, uh, sort of biased in any particular gendered way. Um, but uh, obviously, apart from the, you know, Muslim voters didn't go for Modi in any way. And there were some subgroups like rickshaw drivers who didn't go for Modi. But this was a pretty broad uh, coalition. Um, and uh, there was something similar happening to a much lesser extent in the United Kingdom in 2019. Um, and I guess with Trump's sort of rallying the Rust Belts, even in 2020, you know, when he lost, uh, he expanded his base quite dramatically. So... Um, 
these um, forms of mobilization, as you say, they, on the one hand, they pacify one group of people by terrifying them, by uh, making their lives more precarious and by making it less hopeful for them. Um, and uh, on the other hand, they, they mobilize other groups of people who um, are engaged in a kind of, what would you call it? Uh, it's almost a pseudo mobilization because it does nothing for them. It doesn't improve their life, um, but it, uh, it, it's, it, it makes them feel like they're having a party. Mm. Um, I think it's something yeah. it's the right wing version of the carnivalesque. Yeah. Which, the last time I met you we were on a panel where there's a kind of discussion about that from the floor, the kind of the, as you say, the right wing carnivalesque, the kind of exhilaration, yeah. the exhilaration of the, of the project, which is only maybe barely articulated, but the, but the sense of exhilaration is real. And as you have washed off in the flood of exhilaration, other, things can unfold and become possible. Yeah. I do hear what you're saying about the internal pogrom being a different violence to imperial violence. But I also think that those two violences have been intertwined in different locations, haven't they? That the yeah. enacting of the internal pogrom is, is a kind of demonstrating of the possibility of imperial force outside, which can never be staged for the local population and therefore doesn't have that same exhilarating kind of spectacle. Yes. Yes. So that they they kind of couple they're coupled I think and um yes very much you know India's project is largely a violence within the country which is barely a country because it's a huge landmass very diverse you know very hard to find a, a common narrative of Indianness although that's been the project for some decades and Modi has dreadfully found a kind of kind of most viscerally horrible way of of saying what a shining India will be which has almost yeah. no content, but only an exclusion. But um, but that internal violence is clearly linked in the popular imaginary to certainly military capacity, even if there is no external enemy yet. That, and you know, whatever is still going on with Pakistan. Pakistan, Pakistan doesn't cut it as a global enemy for India anymore, frankly. No, That's indeed. Yeah, you know, because you know, we're in the big boys league now. You know, we need some real big boy nuclear people to fight with but still there's something coupled in there anyway um i was going to say some other things before asking the other question but i do hear what you're saying about more than material interests i should say i'm a little bit resistant to more cultural accounts of why people move rightwards or at least i feel there's some steps missing but i wonder if there's something going on in britain about both a lack of access to hard resources and a loss of whatever the structures or relationships were that would allow you to act on the resources you have. Because there's something about privilege is not only having something in my house, it's also being able to live that privilege in the spaces, including through, you know, there's no point being rich and excluded for racial reasons. You know, doesn't cut it. You have to be kind of the the material benefits also have to feed into social benefits, into access to social goods, into an infrastructure where you're affirmed in every encounter rather than um, denounced and subordinated. And it yeah. feels some bits in that, some very significant parts in that chain are just crumbling in Britain right now for some quite significant sections of the population. Yeah. So not everyone's got poorer, but some of them they've lost social goods or the ability to 
enact the wealth they have, partly because I live in places where it's a, the, the social infrastructure is collapsing. Others are finding a, a limit to their aspirational expansion because Britain is not that kind of place anymore. You can run Weatherspoons, but you know beyond that, Weatherspoons is never going to be Amazon. There's, there's a kind of limiting it at every point. Anyway, that I think I'm saying it now in a roundabout way because we've been talking about it in the class. Now, you've raised this a bit now, but I'm going to ask you a little bit more explicitly because people have been asking it. Why is it in this country that the, um, so many working class voters persistently vote for the right, even when the electoral right is remaking itself? So it's not the same moment as the Thatcher right project in different generations, even when they seem to be barely noticing the rest of us and speaking to us. Still, there is a consistent working class right with vote. And I wondered if you could say something about that formation. Yeah, um, and in a way, this this kind of links back to the whole question of uh, the relationship between internal and external violence. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me when you were um, discussing that before, I'm thinking about examples like um, Brazil or the Philippines, um, where complicatedly the nationalism it certainly is linked to a certain idea of militarism so especially in brazil um but um it's it's not a militarism that's necessarily directed externally um it's got to do with the status of the military within the country um and in, in the philippines even it's somehow linked through various mediations to a kind of anti-imperialist sentiment which is very strange and i wonder if um, I mean, it depends where you are in the UK. I think that um, it's it's really worth investigating why is the case that Scot in Scotland, working class voters turned off the Tories en masse and never went back to them. Um, and, you know, um, the, 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 why did they not have the Red Wall uh, situation? You know, they've been as deunionized as everyone else. But culturally, politically, and in other ways, have remained um, vehemently hostile to the Conservative Party, despite not necessarily being uh, more progressive in terms of their social values than anywhere else in the UK. Um, and I, so I wonder. Um, and also, I mean, his, historically, I mean, if we think about it in terms of the empire, obviously Scotland had a pretty salient role in the empire. Um, Scottish society was deeply formed by imperial attitudes, and yet. You've had this national project um, emerge, which is post-imperial, which has a certain civic liberalism, um, and which has preserved some idea, even if it's uh, extremely uh, shallow, of social democracy. Um, that um, I, I, th I think it would be worth asking why that was more powerful than um, any uh, project, uh, any British sort of project um, for uh, reconstituting working class voters along a kind of left social democratic axis. Um, so that's part of it. It's one side of it is the uh, sort of the political difficulties faced by the left and the fact that we were not able to tackle the national question. Um, uh, and I think just because of a certain resistance to getting into the whole question of unionism um, and what that means in the United Kingdom, um, possibly because the, uh, the left hasn't matured um, on that issue yet. Um, 
But um, in terms of why working class voters still vote for the Conservatives, um, I think it's important to say that there, it's not the same working class voters and it's not the same reasons. So in uh, the Thatcher era, um, you could find a lot of working class voters who were trade unionists. Um, who were integrated into industry, but they were sick to death of all the uh, militants and the lefties. Um, like the, in the mining communities, there were big, big areas that either went for Thatcher or the Social Democrats as, as an opposition to the left. Um, and the, the appeal of Thatcherism, um, which uh, the SDP understood and emulated, was its uh, violent opposition to industrial militancy, trade unions, and uh, the uh, sort of rise of the left. Um, and, uh, you know, like, uh, I think Thatcher made a promise uh, then, which was, look, if we can get rid of these industrial bureaucracies, if we can get rid of the trade union militants, we can make Britain competitive again. If you're a worker, a worker in a car plant, it doesn't help you to have these strikes all the time because you're losing ground to Japan. Um, and that was a plausible message within a certain framework because material interests, so-called, are always, you know, like determined within a strategic horizon. They're always determined within a symbolic horizon. So um, Thatcher was able to appeal to people on that basis. Um, Brexit was obviously something totally different and it was mobilizing the most apathetic, de-unionized, atomized uh, groups of the public. Um, typically, as I mean, the, it's hard to avoid the stereotype here. I mean, you know, we know that typically it's older, uh, tends to be uh, uh, sort of less educated, tends to be uh, less concentrated in city centers and more in small towns, etc., etc. It'd be interesting to figure out what those things are proxies for. Um, because I don't think it's just a question of not being educated, or that plays a role. Um, uh, but uh, And it's certainly not just a generational thing. Um, I think it might have to do with um, the ways in which there's... You mentioned, for example, a moment ago, um, the question of public squalor and the demolition of certain infrastructures. I think that um, if you go to certain parts of this country uh, where the BNP used to do quite well, um, you would find uh, its situations, uh, small towns in the northwest, where um, there are there is very little um, public infrastructure, even less now than there was then, where there is a kind of zero sum game perceived between how much money is given to those Asian communities or to those poorer communities down there as compared to us, and it's. You know the BNP voters; they were not necessarily the poorest. They were the they were on the slightly posher end of the of these working class areas and wanted to distinguish themselves. And it was a certain idea of whiteness um, that was basically they, they they thought of poor white people and disabled white people and drug using white people and so on as being problematically white. Their whiteness was exaggerated in some uh, way. They don't do themselves any favors either. So it's not just the Asians, it's not just the, the blacks, it's uh, it's the whites as well, you know, that kind of attitude. And um, uh, I think that that, that was uh, sedimented into what you just described, the absolute um, death of any sort of shared infrastructure, uh, public infrastructure where um, people feel they're getting enough anyway. 
um, the demolition, obviously, of industrial uh, and unionized workplaces where people have some shared living conditions and co cooperate in some ways. Um, and obviously, the segmentation of labor courses around race. Um, and I suppose maybe another thing, it was interesting that um, during the um, general election, uh, the so-called red wall, which is a misleadingly term, but a lot of the places that flipped were um, previously single, issue, single industry towns, you know, so they had these either one or two industries that were doing extremely well for a long time. They sustained a kind of basic class consciousness. Um, and uh, that's been dead for like 20 years and it's just been a matter of time before they flipped uh to the conservatives and there's a lot of people of a sort of like 50 something generation saying my parents would never have voted tory they would hate me for voting tory but i'm voting tory and i think that that was uh, a long time coming and the last thing i would say about this is um I think, I can't remember the name, I think it might have been Frank Parkin, his name was sociologist in the 60s, looking into the question of why working class people vote for the Conservatives. Um, and he took issue with uh, people like Raphael Samuel and others who said it's, um, it's class deference. Like there's an element of that, but he's saying essentially that's not the real problem. It's a pseudo problem. The real problem is why does anybody not vote conservative in a country where all the dominant institutions are conservative and push you in a conservative direction? And that remains true to this day. I mean, it's not entirely true in the same way. Um, there are liberalizing impulses, there's contradictions. So obviously the academia is um, not quite as conservative and reactionary as it might have been in the 50s. Um, you know, um, there's um, transformations in the media landscape, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, it's, it's curious that even in the absence today, the relative absence of institutions um, you know, uh, that sustain militant left-wing consciousness, that there remain quite large sectors of the population who would uh, be in favor of a kind of um, Corbyn-McDonald project or even more radical than that. Um, and those attitudes, I mean, Jeremy Gilbert would uh, sort of uh, know this in detail, but as far as I understand it, the social attitude surveys, when they look at it, um, there's probably about a fifth of the population that's very hard left but they don't have any representation politically. They don't have any representation in the media. Um, and that's a problem too, like a theoretical problem. It's a problem and it's also an organizing problem because it says the people are out there, what are we doing about it? And that's the, 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 the thing that's crucial to me. Every change that we've seen happen in recent years has happened as a result of well-organized minorities, often very small minorities, uh, levering um, some point of crisis. Like, UKIP and the Brexit Party are one example of this. Um, how can we uh, organize uh, a better uh, and larger minority? Um, and how can we pull behind that a majoritarian sort of uh, idea of uh, progress? I don't know. Um, but um, I think possibly we we worry about uh, working class people going to the right and going to the conservatives. And one of the effects of that might be uh, that we overlook um, the extent to which we're failing to mobilize our own side. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I wondered even as you were speaking about, I really recognize the picture you're painting up and in danger of sounding like a bit of kind of Lisa Nundy, look at the towns kind of thing. But I yeah. think 
I do think that the crumbling of social infrastructure across the country is much more complicated than north and south. It's yeah. in different pockets differently. Clearly, um, seaside towns have um, suffered very much because of a shift. Then there's other kinds of patterns around that even medium-sized cities are very, very different in what's been able to be sustained and remade than a quite large town nearby, let alone the spaces in between. So there's all this kind of odd patterning. And I also think that the absolute change in working lives and industry is almost not narrated at all by any side, actually, in British mainstream political life, that, that the idea that Britain is not made up of five or six major industries and a lot of offshoot industries and we all work in them, it still kind of infects the political imagination on all wings, as yeah. if we're speaking to a workforce that doesn't really exist anywhere in the country anymore. But the bit that I thought, thought well, I have a hopeful streak or just a kind of curious streak, the bit that I think is still unanswered is why that crumbling and mismatch should automatically lead to a turn to the right. And I guess I'd say there's nothing automatic about it. Yeah. As you say, that's the default position because if nothing else, the Conservative Party still look as if they have some authority, that they have some institutional base. If you're floundering about in a world in which both the social and the economic infrastructure is kind of turbulent and uncertain, they look like they're the only party running, whether you like what they're saying or not. We, Our side doesn't yet have a way of talking about, well, what would be um, a political na a narrative? I hate political narratives. What would be an infrastructural project which addresses that kind of mixed up loss of social infrastructure, change in the labour market, change in entitlement and citizenship linked to those things? And that, I think, is a different kind of project. And, um, and I think there's some appetite for it, but it requires us to start in a different place. I'd say, because I'm a chirpy kind of soul, and I always think if you start in a different place, oh, well, maybe we'll get to a better place. But I wondered if that was actually not far from what you were saying, actually. Well, can I just say something about what you were saying about the small towns and, uh, you know, the, the fact that the geography of this is so complicated? Um, one of the things that uh, was very striking in 2017 and even in 2019 to some extent, and you can see this happening, um, is across the southeast, there is a whole range of little towns, especially the seaside towns, that have almost no infrastructure. I mean, I've been down to a lot of these places and it's amazing. It's going back to the 1980s. They still have video shops. Um, there's, you know, like there's nothing. The the 1980s estate agent's dream is still, is still there, but it's all cobwebbed and dusted. But what's happening is they're swinging hard to the left. Um, and I guess that's partly happening because of the overspill from London. Um, and, you know, that's changing the demographics somewhat. But uh, it does speak to your point that there's nothing necessarily automatic about it. I wonder if it's partly also just the difference between a town and a, a city that is shrinking, like demographically it's shrinking. It's losing tax base. It's losing infrastructure. It's losing industry and a town that is growing. You see this even in the United States where Trump um, picked up a lot of votes. A lot of them are sh shrinking towns that used to be quite vibrant. So um, it may be the, the death of uh, urban uh, and suburban infrastructures um, and the death of the sort of their local economy uh, might be part of what's at stake here. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the North-South thing is, um, it's, it's a weird kind of um, 
situation because um, the idea that the North has always been uh, the mainstay of the left is just not true. Like there's always been big areas of conservative voting up in the north. Um, if you go up to Whitby, um, like you know, somewhere like that in the middle of Yorkshire, um, they still, uh, I think they still have those horrible racist dolls. I don't know what you call them um, uh, for sale. They still have the ones from the jam jars, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they still have the Union Jack bunting. Um, and um, it's a very sort of Tory vibe, and there's a lot of those sorts of places in different parts of Yorkshire and so on. So I don't think um, uh, the the idea of the North as um, sort of leftist territory is uh, is very helpful either. Um, and maybe that's why the Red Wall idea is so problematic. Like there's been lots of uh, northern areas that. Uh, flipped to the Conservatives in the 1980s um, and other areas which had been Tory and flipped strongly to Labour in the 1990s. So um, we need to think about what geography is a proxy for because mm. it's not an explanatory factor in itself necessarily. No, and, and also expand our geographical imagination so we actually are mapping places rather than saying, oh, look, north of the M25, south of here. That's mm. that's a failure, isn't it? Okay, it was just this last question. You talked about it a bit, but just because um, probably the people on the course won't always have thought in this way before. So to get and you know a nugget in their heads about it again. But you've talked, you know, you opened really helpfully talking about the ways in which um, the electoral right is not coincident with capital. That you know it's kind of always a slightly squidgy alliance that kind of moves around but how would you characterize the kind of coalition we're seeing right now between sections of capital and sections of the electoral right in this particular kind of moving moment in britain or, you know what would be the headlines you'd give to someone who's just starting out trying to learn that way of analyzing the world it's complicated, isn't it? Because I don't think the relationship between capital and conservative party has ever been quite so tense. Um, it, I'm not saying... Uh, I think that the conservative party has a particularly corrupt and nepotistic relationship with certain sectors of capital at the moment, but they don't have a good relationship with uh, like a, a class-wide purview, if you like. Um, so the fact that the CBI, for example, ha has sort of um, reached out to... Sir Starmer, um, uh, you know, obviously uh, Starmer's going somewhat to the right anyway, but it does suggest to me that they might be looking for an alternative because uh, there's an element of uh, Aaron Davies' uh, sort of uh, analysis of reckless opportunists, you know, ruling class figures who essentially what they do is meetings. Um, they're very charismatic, they're very energetic but they're also extremely destructive and they become hated within a, a very short space of time, uh, having been pretty popular. That happened to Blair. Um, it uh, probably is happening to Johnson. Um, and and so um, there's uh, there's a complicated relationship between, even though they're, they're ruling class figures themselves, even though they come out of um, uh, that kind of education system, uh, even though um, they have, you know, like a lot of senior Tories have been, uh, Goldman Sachs bankers or whatever. So they have a, a, an organic connection, uh, if that's the right term, with um, certain sectors of capital. But I think capital would prefer to have, um, you know, uh, the Cameron Osborne era back. 
um, albeit uh, tweaked in favor of more spending um, and more government investment in infrastructure. Um, so I think that there's much more space now for the kind of um, uh, endemic uh, pujadism in British culture and politics to come to the fore, um, and or has been for some time. That might be shutting down, you know. I mean, uh, I think it's quite possible that what was opened up by Brexit has uh, been closed by coronavirus. Um, coronavirus obviously has had com contradictory political effects, mm -hmm. but um, it, it doesn't seem to me that the Conservative Party is a hive of middle-class um, reaction in the way that it was um, in, in the, that period. Um, it doesn't have that insurgent feel anymore. Um, I just wonder if maybe they've, uh, uh, you know, blown the lot with uh, Johnson, who was always a fair weather ally anyway. Um, in which case, I, I would expect the Conservatives to perform a kind of what you might call a transformism of the right, you know, assimilating these um, insurgent energies, de de detaching their, their truly oppositional content and incorporating in them into a, a, re a revamped, uh, business agenda. Um, in terms of the bigger picture, um, I think to, to me the difference between business conservatism and reaction, um, uh, Corey Robin talks about this to some extent, is that um, reaction is, and, and you know, the political right has always been to this extent adventurist, violent, um, it's not conservative in the sense that it wants to preserve the hallowed institutions. It just wants to uh, reform the institutions in order to smash the revolution, to smash the left. Um, and I think that that's the, you know, that's what we've been seeing rising in recent years. It's not business conservatism. Um, and if you, you know, if you want a, a very dramatic um, illustration of what this has looked like, look at how the the um, funding cartels lost complete control. United, United States politics obviously dominated by corporate funding cartels. They lost complete control of the Republican Party, less so the Democrats. Um, they rallied behind Jeb Bush. He was their guy and he would have represented, you know, continuity. Um, and uh, who won was Donald Trump, whom no business has really supported. Um, and what propelled him was a coalition of, um, apart from the Rust Belt voters that everybody talks about, um, the, the sort of radicalized middle class and dark money and a few oligarchs. That's the last thing that I would like to say, actually, um, which I think is something we need to think about and maybe theorize. Um, the development of the capitalist economy and the accumulation of wealth at the top means that there are more billionaires now than ever before. And therefore, there's much more power for outlier, outliers, people who don't necessarily represent the purview of the whole class. Um, uh, like Robert Mercer or whomever, to fund political projects um, and drive them and have real impact um, that goes, you know, that has nothing to do with what business as a whole wants. So I think that that's, um, that's complicated the relationship between the right and business as well. Um, so I think we're in a contradictory uh, moment, but it may be that it'll settle. It may be that the Conservatives once again stabilize around a relatively hegemonic uh, business-led um, sort of uh, strategic mission for British capitalism. And our job, of course, is to prevent them doing that. But thank you yeah. so much for your...
time and energies and insight. It's really wonderful to speak to you. Thanks. All right, thank you.